Our reading this morning is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, and reading from verse 1 to verse 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. But he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. This is God's word and may he add his blessing to it. Well, as we just spend a few moments looking together at this passage, let's pray for a moment. Father, as your word is open before us now, we pray that we would be open before you and that um, we would be able to listen to what you're saying and that we would apply it to our lives and that in it all you would help us because without you we can do nothing. We're going to spend a bit of time looking together at this passage. Um, let me just read again the first couple of verses where it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. I'm sure for many of us this is a passage that's quite familiar uh, to us. It's one of, one of many famous incidents recorded in the Gospel of Mark. But yet, although it's well known, it's, it's a passage that in many ways can feel really quite far removed from our lives today. Um, if you look at what's happening, um, 
if you look at what happens in this passage and you compare it to what's happened in your, in your life in the past week, the two can seem miles apart. We've got a madman in a graveyard. We've got a legion of unclean spirits. We've got a herd of pigs charging into the sea. The only place any of us will have seen anything like that in the past week would have been on Netflix. A passage like this, although it's familiar, when we actually stop and think about it, it can seem a bit obscure, maybe a bit intimidating, maybe even a bit weird and hard to understand. And for that reason, it's easy to read a passage like that and think, well, oh, I'm not sure what this has got to teach us today. But to, to conclude that a strange passage like this has little to tell us is premature. Because the truth is, this is one of the most relevant passages in the whole New Testament to our lives today. And that's what I want us to recognize today as we explore it together, to see how incredibly relevant it is for all of us. And uh, part of that relevance is that, that this passage is crucial for, for guarding us against misunderstanding some of the things that Jesus taught and some of the things that Jesus um, has come to do. So we're going to think about three things in particular, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to avoid some misunderstandings that we can fall into, and hopefully we will see just how relevant this passage is. So, first thing we're going to say from this passage is that it shows us that we can very easily misunderstand sin. The narrative here is very vivid. You look at verses 1 to 7 and you can see the description of how when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee, they came ashore and they're confronted by a man with an unclean spirit, a man who was demon-possessed. And we're given a little bit of background information about him. We're told that he lived among the tombs. Um, he was violent both towards other people and towards himself. He was clearly known to the community. They were aware of his behavior and they tried to subdue him. But the aggression that, that arose from his condition meant that he had remarkable strength and that no doubt left the people all the more afraid of him. And when Jesus arrives, the man sees him, runs down to meet him, and a confrontation begins. So what's it all about? What's going on? Well, this is one of many occasions in the Gospels when Jesus is confronted with people who are demon-possessed. After Jesus began his public ministry, he very quickly encountered satanic opposition. Now, all of that can seem like a bit of a fairy tale to us. Now, for those of us you know, who all our lives have been familiar with Scripture, even for us it can seem a bit strange and far removed to what we're used to. For somebody who's got little or no biblical knowledge, you read a passage like this and it's like, what's going on here at all? People just, it just seems so different. In our culture, especially in the West, we don't think or talk much in terms of demon possession. And many people have concluded that, you know, when you read something like this in, in, in a gospel like Mark, that was just, you know, the way ancient people understood various physical and psychiatric illnesses that now we understand a lot better. Now, that's probably true of some conditions. But we need to be very careful about dismissing this idea altogether. And there's two things we need to recognize. One we have to recognize is that our, our culture is actually um, 
a very kind of sanitized culture. Um, the Western secular view of things uh, is very narrow in how it approaches things. We're all very kind of um, mathematical. We don't really allow for anything other than what we're used to and what we see regularly. But that's very different to many other parts of the world. There are many cultures today that have got no problem, no hesitation in recognizing demonic activity, even with the advances in psychiatric medicine that we've seen. And it takes an enormous amount of confidence, or maybe even arrogance, on our part in the Western world to say, oh, everybody else is wrong. We're the ones who know better. And I can't really claim any expertise myself on this question as to how much this kind of demonic activity happens today. My own view is that I would be hesitant to say that demonic activity is exactly the same today as it was in Jesus' time. And the reason for that is because I think that the arrival of Jesus, um, and particularly the beginning of his public ministry, prompted a, a particularly strong level of opposition from satanic forces. And the death and resurrection of Jesus binds and restricts the subsequent activity of Satan. But I also think it's true that we are possibly in danger of being too quick to dismiss the ongoing reality of spiritual warfare, because it is an ongoing reality. So we have to recognize that, that, that we can sometimes be too quick to just think, well, this happened then, it never happens now. The other thing we have to recognize is that no matter what happens in particular places or in particular periods, this passage is challenging us to think about how we understand the world, and in particular, it's challenging us to think about how we understand good and evil. And that's a massively important issue for us to consider, because ultimately, we have to make a choice. When we look at the world, and when we're thinking about how do we understand good and evil, how do we explain it? Nobody denies that it exists, it's right there in front of us, but how do we explain it? And we've got a choice Either we are born into a realm where good and evil already exist and we have to reckon with that reality. Or the alternative is that we are born into a realm where good and evil are created by us and where we are responsible for that reality. Now, I want to make sure I'm explaining that clearly. The first one is the biblical view that, that good and evil exist before humans ever came into the world. The other is the view that, that, that dismisses the whole idea of the supernatural and basically says that, you know, the natural is all that there is and therefore when we see things that are good and evil, ultimately that's something that's been created by us and for which we carry responsibility. In other words, humanity is either susceptible to all that is evil or humanity is the source of all that's evil. We're either susceptible to the reality of evil that's external from us, or we're the source of it. And the latter of these two views, the one that says there's no such thing as Satan, no such thing as demons, and ultimately uh, the, the physical universe and humanity is all that there is, that view does not make humanity clever. It makes humanity grotesque. And the reason it makes humanity, humanity grotesque is because it's saying that every single example of hideous human behavior is entirely our own doing. The Bible never 
degrades humanity to that level. Instead, the Bible tells us that we are born into a realm where the good, holy, and righteous God is opposed by Satan and the kingdom of evil. And that points us to the fact that according to a biblical worldview, the whole of history is in the context of a conflict narrative. God is good. His purposes are good and holy and wise and pure, but he's opposed by Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, the father of lies, the enemy of all that's good. And the result is the reality of spiritual warfare, a cosmic conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. And humanity has been dragged into that conflict. We were dragged into that conflict in Genesis 3 when the devil deceived Adam and Eve, when humanity turned from God, rebelled against him and aligned itself with the kingdom of evil. And God's response was to engage in battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil. And for centuries, Satan and his kingdom were in the ascendancy as God's people waited for the Savior to come. But now Jesus has arrived. The kingdom of God has come and a massive confrontation begins between Satan and Jesus. This passage is one of many battles that took place as part of that monumental war. And all of this is pointing us to what is one of the most common and most catastrophic misunderstandings that we can fall into. It's the misunderstanding of thinking that sin isn't that big a deal. Now that's, that's a massively important lesson that Mark chapter 5 is teaching us and it's relevant to every one of us because it is so incredibly easy to think that sin just isn't that big a deal and a huge reason why we can fall into that trap is because that this is because this is the mindset of the culture around us the world that we live in today thinks in those terms if you look at the past hundred years or so two major things have happened one is many sins are, no, are now no longer seen as sins. And you could all think of lots of different examples of stuff that a hundred years ago would have seemed unthinkable is now perfectly acceptable. And that's, that's a pathway, a, a kind of slope that, that our culture has been, been tumbling down over uh, the past century, probably even for longer. So we see sins, so things that, that are sins are not seen as sins. But the other thing that's happened is that the stuff that we still see as bad, so stuff that everybody would say is sinful and wrong and bad, that's become our entertainment. And so the, the films we watch, the TV programs we like, the books that we read, the newspapers that we buy, so often the entertainment that's most attractive to, to culture in Scotland and in the West today is the entertainment that's full of stuff. That's horrific. Now, I'm not saying all that to sound kind of all pious and judgmental, and I'm not saying that, you know, you mustn't watch films or buy books or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm trying to get us to see is that all of that can lead us to think that sin is just not that big a deal. And that's a terrifying misunderstanding. We've all got to recognize how serious 
and dangerous and horrible sin is. And a passage like this helps us. Because when you look at the behavior of this demon-possessed man, one thing is so abundantly clear. Sin is utterly destructive. When we think of the word sin, so often we think of the word bad. And that's true because sin is bad. But when you see that word sin, you should also think of the word destruction. Because that's sin's goal. That's what sin is trying to achieve. Sin wants to destroy you and to destroy me. It doesn't want to entertain you. It doesn't want to make you happy. It wants to destroy you while you think you're being entertained and while you think you've been made happy. And you see it so clearly in this man. He was aggressive, uncontrollable, violent, and he was constantly self-harming. He lived among the tombs. He was attracted to death. He was a total mess. And when you see the demons come out of him, what happens? They go into the pigs, and what do the pigs do? They go hurtling into the sea. It's an incredibly powerful picture of destruction. That's what sin wants to do to you. That's the devil's objective. That's how horrible and hideous sin is. It's totally destructive. And even though you might not have met a man like Legion, you don't need to look far to see evidence of the destructive power of sin. Humanity's greed is destroying our environment. The beautiful creation that God made. Addiction is wrecking people's lives all across Scotland. Sexual immorality is destroying relationships. It's crushing people's self-esteem. Unforgiveness is destroying families. Gossip destroys friendship. I'm... 39 years old, and I'm going to say that in every sermon until I'm 40. Um, I'm 39 years old. According to the Office of National Statistics, the thing that is statistically most likely to kill me is myself. Sin is so horrifically destructive. It's horrible. And just please don't ever fall into that trap of thinking, ah, oh, sin's not that big a deal. If you do, you're not only misunderstanding Jesus, you're misunderstanding everything that's going on in the world around us. We can so easily misunderstand sin. But the second thing that this passage teaches us is that we can very easily misunderstand mess. We can easily misunderstand mess. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the man in these verses is in a desperate state. And he's clearly been in this condition for a while. All the attempts to subdue him have failed. And we read about that uh, in verses 3, 4, uh, and 5. And I can't help but wonder that if you imagine being in the local area at the time, imagine you were just on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, um, and you see Jesus and the disciples coming ashore on the boat. You see them step on to the, to the ground. And then you see the guy from the tombs coming down. And you think, oh my goodness, this is not going to end well. And 
when we're confronted by the havoc that sin causes in people's lives, we can so easily come to the same kind of conclusion. We see sin's destructive power. We see the wreckage that it leaves in people's lives. And we can think, there's no hope. And I find myself thinking that many times. You're confronted by an awful situation and you just think, oh, this person's got no chance. It's all too much of a mess. It's all too far gone. This passage is showing me and you that that conclusion is wrong. If we look at someone's life and think that's too much of a mess, then we're misunderstanding what we're being taught here about Jesus. And this is shown so powerfully in the amazing restoration that takes place in this narrative. The man is healed by Jesus. And you have this beautiful picture uh, of him in verse 15 where he's sitting with Jesus, he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. But the reason that healing takes place is because Jesus draws a crucial distinction in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, you will see Jesus says, come out of the man you unclean spirit. Jesus tells the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In other words, Jesus makes a distinction between the man and the mess. He recognizes that underneath all the destructive power of sin that's evident in this man's life, underneath that is a precious person who needs to be healed and who can be healed. You think of all the horrible mess in this man's life. There was violence, misery, isolation, distress, self-harm. It's so easy to look at this guy and think how horrible this man is. You look at him, oh, that's such a horrible guy. Jesus doesn't think like that. He doesn't think, look at how horrible this man is. He thinks, look how horrible life is for this man. And it's astonishing, you know, you see in verse 7 that the demons begged Jesus that they wouldn't be tormented, and yet they've got no hesitation in tormenting this man day and night. They are cruel, merciless, destructive, and totally selfish. Jesus looks at that mess, and he does two brilliant things. He looks at the demonic forces, and he opposes them with relentless determination. And he looks at the man, and he heals him with extraordinary compassion. And this is where we see that the passage is giving us two vital warnings. It warns us against a casual view of sin, as we've been saying. God forbid that we ever think that sin is something that we can muck about with. But at the same time, the passage is warning us against a hopeless view of brokenness. And this is so crucial because we're surrounded by brokenness. You see it in the news. We see it in our communities. Maybe you can see it in your own life. And maybe nobody else knows. You look and you think, there's so much that's wrong with me. There's so many ways that I've messed up. It's so easy to feel helpless. But this passage is making, that, making it abundantly clear that no one and nothing is too messy for Jesus. We must always make that distinction between the man or the woman and the mess. We must always follow what Jesus does, where he sees beyond the chaos someone 
who needs to be healed. And that hope for people in a mess is powerfully demonstrated by what happened to the pigs in verse 11 to 13. Now you might be thinking, Thomas, what do you mean? Because this does seem like one of the strangest passages. And it's, it's funny, um, you know, you think of things that people ask about. This is a really common question that people will ask about. Like, what's going on with the pigs? Why is this happening? Why do the pigs fly down the hill? Well, there's three key lessons that we learn from these pigs. One is that it shows how destructive sin was. And we mentioned that already, and it's important to reinforce that again. That what the demons did to the pigs is showing us what they were trying to do to the man. That's what sin wants to do to all of us. Sin wants to destroy us. But secondly, the fact that the demons went into the pigs, the fact that the pigs went hurtling into the sea, showed the man that the legion was no longer in him. It was such a powerful demonstration to that man that those demons were gone. They were no longer in him. And that must have been an incredible reassurance for him. So it shows how destructive destructive sin is. It's assuring the man that that Jesus' actions have been successful, that he's been healed. But the third thing is that there's a really powerful irony in what happens here. Because if you carry on reading through the narrative, you discover that the people are far more shocked about what happened to the pigs than they were about what was happening to the man. If the man had run down the hill, thrown himself into the sea and died, what would the people have said? They'd have probably breathed a sigh of relief. And yet, when they lose their pigs, it's the talk of the town. It looks as though they're raging because of what's happened. You can imagine the Decapolis Gazette if there was such a thing, you know, pigs drowned in the sea, whereas if the guy had died, well it would probably not have been newsworthy. Jesus never thinks like that. Jesus doesn't think like that. For Jesus, this man is worth far more than a thousand pigs. No matter how much of a mess he was in. And that's just such an important lesson um, for us all. It's so easy for us to misunderstand mess whether that's mess in other people or mess in ourselves, it's so easy for us to think that they're too far gone or I'm too far gone. That is never true. And the reason it's not true is seen in the third thing I want us to look at. So we've said that we can easily misunderstand sin. This passage helps us to see how serious it is. Um, uh, We can easily misunderstand mess Because we can think that it's hopeless when it isn't. The third thing is that this passage shows us we can easily misunderstand Jesus' mission. We've been saying that the whole of history is in the context of a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. Mark 5 is a glimpse into that conflict. And one thing that's absolutely clear is that demonic forces are powerful. Verses 3 to 4 describe how that power is manifested in the strength of the man. Verse 13, you see that demonic power destroying the pigs. And that's just one example of the fearsome strength of the kingdom of evil. 
Satan is capable of causing havoc. But the key thing that Mark wants us to know is that in the face of all that demonic power, Jesus is far, far stronger. In every encounter between Jesus and the kingdom of evil recorded for us in the Gospels, there is only ever one outcome. Jesus is stronger And it's reminding us that at the heart of Jesus' mission is a determination to confront, fight, and totally defeat the kingdom of evil. This goes back to what we've been saying about a conflict narrative. All of history is in this context. It's all within this battle between good and evil. That heavenly battle has raged in the days of the New Testament. That heavenly battle has intruded into time. And hell throws everything that it can against Jesus. And every single time it does, Jesus shows that he's stronger. You look again at this passage, you can see it proved right in front of you. This man has, they've bound him many times. He's left shackles and chains in pieces. No one can subdue him. Jesus comes and subdues him. And all he has to do is speak. He just speaks and the man is subdued and this points us to an aspect of the personal work of Jesus that we can so easily forget often the gospels will highlight Jesus's compassion his wisdom his gentleness his humility his obedience now I love all of that that's one of the most amazing things that we learn about Jesus that he's so full of all of that wisdom gentleness humility that's absolutely central to who Jesus is But if we think about Jesus' mission as just being in terms of gentleness, meekness, wisdom, humility, we're in danger of missing something crucial because alongside all of that, Jesus has come to confront and defeat the kingdom of evil. And as he does that, we discover that he is the mightiest, bravest, and strongest warrior that the world has ever seen. He's come to do battle He has come to destroy the kingdom of evil. He has come to achieve total victory. And of course, that's what God's been saying all along. From the day Adam and Eve sinned, God said, my salvation is going to come through conflict. I'm going to put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the serpent is strong because it can bruise the heel, but the seed of the woman, Jesus, is stronger. He will crush the serpent's head. And ultimately that victory is not accomplished here on the shores of Galilee. That victory is accomplished on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says that Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When Jesus died and rose again, he crushed the kingdom of Satan. And the restoration of the universe and of humanity began. Jesus knows how horrific sin is. Jesus knows the horrendous mess that that's left us in. In the face of that, Jesus stands strong. 
Jesus is victorious. We can so easily misunderstand sin and think it's just a plaything. It's not. It's hideously destructive. We can easily misunderstand mess and think that all hope is gone. That's not true. He was on a mission to defeat Satan and to undo all the damage that sin has caused. We can so easily misunderstand this, but Jesus didn't. Jesus doesn't misunderstand any of this. Jesus knows how awful sin is. He knows what he's up against. He knew that satanic opposition would be relentless and brutal. He knew how massive the enemy was. Jesus knows the mess that sin has placed us in. He knows how much sin, how much damage sin has done. He knows how broken the world is. And he knows that although we're not the ultimate source of evil, we've done so much to make things worse. Jesus sees and knows the horrendous power of the enemy. Jesus sees and knows the failure and brokenness of humanity. And he could so easily conclude that you're not worth the fight. But he doesn't. He looks at this man, he looks at humanity, he looks at you, and he says, I'll fight to the death for you. And that's why this passage is so relevant and crucial, because it's pointing us to the biggest questions that we have in life. People ask these questions. Why does bad things happen? Why is it evil? Why are things like this? Why has everything gone so wrong? It's pointing us to the reality of good and evil, heaven and hell, the reality of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil, to the fact that there's no middle ground. It's pointing us to all of these big questions. And in the midst of all these giant questions, the big truth that we're being pointed to is the fact that Jesus has come for you. He's come to save you. To restore you so that you could be with him forever. But the passage isn't just relevant because of what it's telling us regarding the big questions of life. It's also relevant because it tells us what we all need to do this week. Because if you're not yet a Christian, what do you need to do this week? You need to think about it. God, to think about this. And for those of us who are Christians, what do we need to do this week? We've got to talk about it. And that's exactly what this man did. You go to verses 19 and 20. Jesus didn't let him come with him on the boat. He said, said, go home to your friends and your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. That is exactly how we as Christians need to live our lives this week. So it's an amazing passage. It's got an awful lot uh, to teach us. Um, and I hope that it's just a reminder to us all um, of how serious sin is, but of the fact that Jesus is so much stronger and nothing is too hard for him to fix. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just in amazement when we read this passage and think about everything that you've come to do for us, about how you came 
in full knowledge of the task and the battle that lay ahead of you and you confronted evil in all its power in order that we might be saved and we just thank you so so much for doing that for us and we pray that you'd lead us and guide us all to know you and we pray that we would just be able now to go into this week uh, telling others of how much you've done for us amen Our closing psalm is Psalm 130. We're going to sing the Sing Psalms version of that. That's on page 173, Psalm 130. Lord, from the depths I call to you. Lord, hear me from on high and give attention to my voice when I for mercy cry. An amazing, um, an amazing summary uh, of of just the hope that God gives uh, in distress and in difficulty. So we'll sing Psalm 130 to God's praise as we close. Lord, from the depths I call to grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.